In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A news story caught my eye a few weeks ago. It was about a study by the Harvard economist Raj Chetty of the impact of wealth on admissions practices at elite schools like his employer. The study got a lot of play on the internet, partly because it appeared within a week of the Supreme Court ruling to end affirmative action in college admissions. But also partly, I suspect, because of our continued cultural fascination with Nepo babies, who, in case you missed this particular phenomenon, are the children of mostly entertainment industry elites who found their way into the same profession by its supposed nepotism. New York Magazine went so far last December as to proclaim 2022 the year of the Nepo baby. Such stories and studies catch our eye, I reckon, because they confirm our suspicions that Hollywood, the Ivies, and other lanes of power aren't the meritocracies that they're sometimes pretended to be, including by the Nepo babies themselves, who sometimes infuriate us further by trying to convince us that they've earned whatever they've got by the sweat of their brows. Well, I've been reading Dante's Purgatorio this summer, and I thought of the Nepo babies upon encountering the character Umberto Aldobrandesco, who Dante meets carrying a heavy stone on his back. It bows him down to cure him over time of his sin of pride. It seems to me that Umberto isn't quite cured yet. He says to Dante, from a great Tuscan family I came. William Aldo Brandesco was my father. I don't know if you've ever heard the name. The ancient bloodlines and gallant deeds of my forefathers made me turn so vain I never thought about our common mother but held all men in a high disdain. And now I must, till God is satisfied, carry this heavy weight I would not carry among the living here among the dead. Well, at least Umberto knows why he's carrying his heavy load, but it strikes me he's still overly eager to declare his ancient bloodline. A noteworthy contrast, it strikes me, to the typical Nepo baby eagerness to conceal theirs. Anyway, I bring up Umberto and the Nepo babies alike because while our readings today convey us a great deal of joyful news, they convey too a warning that it would be foolish to overlook and that the figures I've mentioned so far may help to illustrate. Let's start with the good news, which just blazes out of all four passages this morning. Salvation is for all the peoples, us included. Starting with Isaiah 56, we have these comforting words for non-Israelites. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be of servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
Psalm 67 begins with a version of Aaron's blessing over the Israelites in the book of Numbers. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. In Aaron's blessing, the us refers quite clearly to the people of Israel. In our psalm, however, the us turns out to encompass all the peoples and nations, and indeed all the ends of the earth. St. Paul in Romans celebrates his ministry as apostle to the Gentiles, who he says have been grafted onto a holy olive tree to share its rich root. And of course, we have the wonderful story from Matthew of the Canaanite woman, who, though humbly acknowledging that she is one of those whom Jews like Jesus derisively called dogs, nevertheless, through her humility, persistence, and great faith, enjoys scraps from her master's table when her daughter is healed. That we might enjoy scraps too is something that we persistently pray every week before communion in what we call the prayer of humble access, expressing our faith that God, whose character is always to have mercy, would invite us to his table, unworthy though we are of being there. That our gracious Lord grants us all so to eat the flesh of his dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us, that's the joyful news from our readings today. Now for the warning. St. Paul expresses it baldly. If you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted among the others to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches, do not become arrogant, but be afraid. The imperative verbs here are singular. Paul is speaking not just to the Roman Gentiles as a group, but to you and to me. Before dwelling on Paul's words, however, it will be helpful first to observe a few things about Jesus's interaction with the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. To begin with, he meets her because, for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, he has ventured beyond Galilee into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And while Matthew doesn't say so explicitly, it appears he's ventured there partly because he's been so harassed by the scribes and Pharisees, who in the earlier bits of the chapter have been after him about his disciples not washing their hands. Blind guides, he calls them, and he warns they'll be rooted up. Now up comes this woman, asking him to heal her demon-possessed daughter, and Jesus, whose character, being God, is always to have mercy, ignores her. That's pretty startling, right? She's persistent, though, and eventually his disciples ask him to send her away, presumably after doing what she's asked just to get rid of her. Jesus reminds them of what he told them before sending them out back in chapter 10, when he had said to them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, she persists. 
she lowers herself to her knees. She says, Lord, help me. And Jesus gets apparently even more offensive using the derogatory term kunarion, which means something like a pet dog. Commentators agree this would have been a common enough term for Jews to lob at their old enemies, the Canaanites, but why would Jesus say it? Some commentators suggest it was tongue-in-cheek with a twinkle in his eye, a parody of the sort of thing a proud Jewish man might be expected to say in such circumstances. Whatever you make of that idea, I find plausible the proposal of other commentators that Jesus aims in part to clarify the nature of his mission. Yes, he's been going around healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, preaching in parables, and so forth, but he isn't any old wandering healer and preacher and teacher. He is the Messiah the fulfillment of God's promises to his chosen people Israel, upon whom his ministry focuses and through whom God's salvation will come. And the Canaanite woman somehow recognizes this. She addresses Jesus using a Jewish title for the Messiah, son of David, she calls him. And she humbly submits to her doghood persisting only in her request for a dog's rights to the scraps under the table. Her great faith that Jesus marvels at is that such scraps would suffice for her and her daughter. Now, St. Paul notes that the Gentile Christians he's addressing in Rome have been grafted onto the olive tree with the rich root through faith as well. You stand on account of faith, he says. He also recognizes to his sorrow that many of his fellow Jews have been broken off, rooted up, as Jesus said about the Pharisees, on account of their lack of faith. Paul even says he wishes he could cut himself off for the sake of his kinsmen, something I've always found pretty alarming. But in our passage today, anyway, his chief concern is to make sure that Gentiles like me don't get the wrong idea about his fellow Jews. Has God rejected them? By no means, he says. Their temporary rejection has meant the reconciliation of the world, but their ultimate acceptance will mean life from the dead, a reference presumably to the day of resurrection. Two metaphors reinforce this idea. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Opinions vary on the significance of the first fruits and the root, but quite plausibly they refer to the faith of Abraham and the other patriarchs of Israel. True, some of Paul's brethren including his fellow Pharisees, have arrogantly presumed that their connection to Abraham entitles them to God's favor. John the Baptist excoriated these in Matthew chapter 3. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. They are like Umberto, whose pride in his ancestry is being painfully crushed out of him in purgatory. But there are many forms pride can take. Paul's message to Gentiles like me is not to succumb to a different, even more invidious sort, arrogantly supposing that we have somehow supplanted them in God's favor, or like the infuriating Nepo babies of the internet, that we have earned our place independent of our ancestry. Like it or not, after all, we are Nepo babies in this regard, supported by the root of the patriarch's faith and by God's faithfulness to his chosen people. Perhaps, switching back to Jesus' metaphor, to call ourselves children is to elevate ourselves still too high. We're pet dogs fed on scraps from the master's table. Theologically speaking, I think the message here is a warning against what's sometimes called supersessionism, the idea that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant such that the church has replaced Israel in God's favor and his promises to them have been replaced with promises to us. Christian theologians reject this notion. They disagree certainly about the precise nature of the role Israel will ultimately play in eschatological history, but they agree it will play a starring role and that God's promises to it will be fulfilled not set aside. Morally speaking, the message is about humility, concerning which my own understanding has benefited greatly from reading a series of papers on the subject co-authored by one former and one current All Souls congregant. They point out that humility is not a matter of belittling oneself, or thinking of oneself as lower than one really is, that would be a vicious sort of self-abuse or self-deception. Nor is it a matter of accurate self-assessment, of viewing and accepting oneself warts and all as one truly is. Of course, self-knowledge might be helpful in getting one to humility, and likewise, humility might be essential for achieving self-knowledge, but one might accurately assess oneself as genuinely outstanding in status or attainments and still be sinfully proud, arrogantly supposing, for instance, that one's status or attainments entitle them to special treatment or worse, to God's special favor. Instead of being inwardly focused, these authors argue, humility is outwardly focused. Rather than think about their status in relation to others in a self-effacing way or in an accurately self-appraising way, humble persons tend not to be very concerned with it at all. They're too busy attending to other things of genuine worth. Insofar as they reflect on themselves in comparison with others, they tend to be unimpressed with themselves, as the ethicist Jorge Garcia puts it. 
At any rate, they tend not to allow concern for their own status or attainments to distract their focus on truly worthwhile tasks at hand, as another philosopher, Laura O'Callaghan, emphasizes. Well, without going any further into what philosophers have to say about humility, consider how the Canaanite woman presents an exemplar of the virtue. Even to put herself in the position of begging for Jesus's help in the first place shows how much more concerned she was with her daughter's welfare than for her own status vis-a-vis -vis this Jewish man. When Jesus initially ignores and then apparently insults her, this surely provided ample opportunity for her to be distracted by concerns for her status. But no, if Jesus wants to call her a dog, then so be it. She'll take a dog's scraps. I can't speak for all dogs, but our pointer, Roscoe, is a humble beast. He isn't self-effacing, nor an accurate self-appraiser, for the simple reason that he doesn't think about himself much at all. What does characterize his behavior is refusal to allow concern for his status to distract from a laser-like focus on what truly matters, which for him consists chiefly of joyful, shared activity with our family. He worries not a bit if participating in such shared activities requires submission to callers or crates or the tender mercies of small children in the back of our minivan. He steadfastly trusts his masters that the crumbs of food, attention, or whatever else we throw him will be enough. The good news from today's readings is that we too are invited to occupy this sort of role in God's kingdom. We're included. Salvation is for all the peoples. The warning from today's readings is that we're invited to occupy this sort of role in God's kingdom and not to allow any of the many forms pride can take to distract us from it. Amen. <laughs>